Happy Sunday. It's almost Pesach. Thank you for taking time out from cleaning and cooking to be here. So uh, you're in the right place if you're looking for a CSP 18th year program co-sponsored by Temple Beth Shalom entitled Storytelling in the Bible, How and Why. Professor Zioni Zevet is our special guest speaker. He was here last year and he promises this is appropriate for the holiday of Pesach. Relevant? Of course. He said definitely. And uh, I wanted to thank you all for coming out. If you're a member of CSP, Community Scholar Program, thank you for your support. We are entering our 19th year in just about a month or so. I hope, we, I hope you will continue your support for CSP. If you are not a member of CSP, welcome. Know that uh, we have been around for 18 years and have done close to 500 programs, probably more over the years. And our goal is to bring the best Jewish thinkers and writers and poets and artists in the world to Orange County for your enjoyment. We do cover a variety of topics, and many of our programs have been recorded. Today's will be recorded as well. You can go to OCCSP on the iTunes podcast, and you'll find many of our recordings to enjoy. If you're listening on the podcast and you're not a member and would like to make a donation to CSP, go to www.occsp.org and uh, make your donation. Thank you. Okay. Um, upcoming programs I just wanted to mention for CSP. May 3rd, um, May 4th, and May 5th. So next month we have Rachel Korazim coming back. We're looking at topics including Forbidden Games, all about censorship, um, Homeland and Identity, based on Amos Oz's novel, A Tale of Love and Darkness, and the third program, How to Become an Israeli. Uh, Udi Gorin is coming to town, back to town. He'll be speaking about the many layers of Jerusalem at a lunch program, and then in the evening he'll actually be at Congregation B'nai Israel doing his program about the Israel Trail, which many of you heard. But if you want to enjoy it again, you can go. Or if you didn't, if you missed it, you should definitely go hear that program as well. Uh, that is May 9th, which I believe is Yom Ha'atzmaut. Or pretty close, but I think it's Yom Ha'atzmaut. Um, Judy Klitzner comes back May 28th. The Me Too in the Bible is Sexism Mandated in the Garden of Eden. Hope you'll join us for that one. And um, as many of you know, we have a big group going on a Jewish root trip to Lithuania and Poland, July uh, 7th through the 19th. Um, 1,000 Years of History, The Power of Memory, and it is sold out, but if you're interested, you can always be on our wait list, and uh, who knows, maybe the next uh, week or so, something will open up. There is a program coming up here, though, that I wanted to mention. I saw it advertised as I walked in, and it was very fortuitous because it's something that I wanted people to see. Whether or not you're coming with us to Poland and Lithuania, um, but particularly if you're coming to Lithuania and Poland, you should maybe think about attending it. Who will write our history? So they're showing the movie here, and according to the information, I think it's May 1st at 7 p.m., and I believe there'll be a Q&A with the director, Roberta Grossman. So I urge you all to come here. Anybody, who, who's a member of Temple Beth Shalom? Okay, so you, I assume you know about this program? And no one told me, Norman, you didn't tell me this was here? It's a great program. So I urge you all to come back here May 1st, buy tickets. Is it going to be shown in here? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So uh, come to the program. And if you're coming to Poland, Lithuania, please come to the program. So sign up in advance and buy your tickets. Uh, I saw that Ahuva Ho snuck in. Ahuva, thank you. Um, each year we try to do at least one program on archaeology so that I can avoid Ahuva's wrath. And um, Ahuva has told me year after year we've got to bring Zioni Zevet, which we did last year, and we're bringing him back to make you happy, Ahuva, and make us all happy. So thank you so much. Before we get started, please turn off your cell phones so we don't have any interruptions. We're going to have to pay close attention to what we're going to learn. And um, 
then I will start the introductions. Everybody, can I see your cell phones up? And have you held them up? Did you turn them off? Thank you, Alita. I saw that. Okay. Um, I always say I always want to say Zioni Zevet, but I think it's Zioni Zevet. Okay. Thank you. It's both. Zioni Zevet is a distinguished professor of biblical literature and Northwest Semitic languages. Um, who joined the faculty of American Jewish University in 1974. He is currently the teacher of Adina Melman. Where's Adina? Thank you. And Adina is here to learn more in anticipation of her next test. Um, he earned his PhD at UC Berkeley, but also spent time studying at UCLA. And therefore, if you see him at a football game, he switches each half. That's just the only fair thing to do. Um, he also studied at Hebrew University, University of Michigan, um, and University of Vienna. Prior to joining AJU's faculty, Dr. Zevet taught at the University of Haifa, Ben-Gurion University of the Negev, the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and UC Berkeley, which I believe is also where uh, Noah Taft graduated. Noah, where is this one of your professors? Okay. I don't, think Noah, I don't think Noah did well in your class. I just don't. Since joining the faculty, he has held visiting professorships at University of Pennsylvania, UCLA, USC, UCSD, and the Hebrew University. Dr. Zevit has participated in archaeological excavations at Tel Lachish and Tel Dan, and regularly visits ongoing excavations in Israel at least once a year to keep up. He has been awarded fellowships by the National Endowment for the Humanities. Is that still being funded? That's good. That's, I hope so. The American Council of Learned Societies, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Lady Davis Fellowship Trust, and the John Simon Guggenheim Foundation. 2013, he was appointed visiting distinguished professor at the Albright Institute of Biblical and Archaeological Research in Jerusalem. And that same year, his fourth book, his fourth authored book, What Really Happened in the Garden of Eden, was published. In 2017, his fourth edited volume, Subtle Citation, Illusion, and Translation of the Bible, was published, bringing his total of publications to 140, which I assume is outdated. Is it more than 140? Okay. How many? 141? 152. Please join me in welcoming Professor Zioni Zevet. Zioni Zevet. We have a lot of ground to cover today, as you can see from the handbook, uh, from the handout, rather, and we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, I'm just curious, how many of you know the names of your grandparents? All four of them. Okay, how many of you know the names of all eight of your great-grandparents? One, two, okay, <laughs> two people. Uh, three people. It's very, it's very, it's very interesting. Uh, so it means that most of us know our fairly recent past, Okay, which can go back maybe to the 1800s, late 1800s. And then ancient, ancient past. But there are somewhere in between 1,500 years, 1,600 years, 1,700 years, sort of has dropped out of our repertoire of memories and of stories. Uh, so where do we get our information if we want to fill in the blanks, and how would we do that if we didn't have access to various apps, websites, etc., that could get us to genealogical societies, to the odd historian somewhere in the world who's interested in the history of Jewish people in such and such a town, or the history of certain political movements in the 1300s, 
Uh, I have a friend, a retired banker, who, uh, excuse me, who uh, became, after he retired, he did a doctorate in uh, history. Uh, he, he, grew up, he's, uh, he grew up in San Salvador, uh, and so he decided he was going to do a follow an interesting, or a person he thought was interesting, Murano. And it ends up that this person uh, knew English, and he knew Spanish, and he knew Italian, and he traveled in all of those countries working with various uh, crypto Jews in different places, and there are records of him, and now he's found in Brazil and also in other places in, um, in South America. So he's interested in this, in this strange man and his travels. Apparently, the man has hundreds of living relatives, not of one of whom is even aware of this person's past as a diplomat, banker, trader, man who spent time in jail, all sorts of really interesting things. Um, family stories then are rather important. You now, they are less important to us than they were to our ancestors because we live in a country where I am who I am as a legal entity. I am an individual. So it's not even important for me to know who my parents are. It's interesting, but it's not important for me to know. But imagine living in a tribal society. Okay? The significance of being in a tribe is that your identity is not only your mother and your father, but your grandparents and your grandparents' brothers and sisters, and then all of the cousins who are descended from them, up to a, a thickness of five generations, okay? This relatives five removed, going up, and five removed. Why? Because if you're a young man and you accidentally killed somebody, any one of those relatives can be killed instead of you. And that would settle the blood feud. Now, they're going to try to get to you, but they can settle for one of your relatives if you take off. Okay? Um, on the other hand, any one of, your, of those relatives who wants to pay off the family with blood money, okay, as if you saw the newspapers, Khashoggi's children are getting millions of dollars as blood money to cover the death, his death, uh, then that's an acceptable way of doing it. If you needed uh, help for something, you would go to one of those relatives. Part of the tribal existence is it is a broad-based insurance network, personal insurance. It determined who you could marry, who you couldn't marry. It determined who could call on you for help. Uh, it could determine if someone comes up to you and say they've attacked me and we have to go on a raid to revenge something, you have to, you have to volunteer to be drafted, otherwise you can be banished from your tribe. So knowing the stories and how you're, how you're related becomes very, very important. Now, our interest as, as Jews is a little bit different than the tribal because we don't have anything particularly uh, significant of a living, of a day-to-day, -day, uh, on a day-to-day -day basis connected to our genealogies. But if I, you meet a cousin, you want to know how are we related? What are the stories about people who connect? We want to know these stories. And people tell stories. And most of you will have stories about your parents. Or you've told your children stories. And I, let's go to that one for just a moment. How many times have your kids asked you 
questions, and you know the answer to the question about what did you do when you were 18? Okay, what did you do at parties? Okay, okay. How many of you have withheld, or let's put it this way, you told the truth, but you sort of skipped on the whole truth and nothing but the truth? Okay, not too many guilty, uh, <laughs> not too many guilties. We don't necessarily convey what the truth is, but we tell the stories that we want them to hear because we want them to learn something about us and we think we're teaching them a lesson that's good for life, okay? Um, so the idea of, of a parent or a child discovering that his parent has lied sometimes on purpose isn't all that surprising. And certainly you're not gonna share stupid indiscretions with your kids, uh, unless you're that sort of a person who likes sharing stupid indiscretions with your kids. But by and large, that tends not to be the case. But there's another factor that very often affects how we convey information to our own family, and that is how our memory tricks us. We forget certain things that we've done or we enhance certain things that we have done. Over time, our social network and the way that our, our friends tell us stories and we tell them stories, it begins to influence the way stories are told. And to some extent, what I want to explore today, and through the reading, through an analysis of four stories that we're gonna look at rather quickly, is I want, is how People told biblical stories, or put it a different way, we have biblical stories. The people who originally told those stories, they weren't telling biblical stories. They were telling stories to their children and their grandchildren. Um, and in some cases, the stories were transmitted accurately. We have no way of controlling for that, but if a story's going to be an interesting story, well then it, it has to be interesting. Otherwise, you know, born, you know, worked, the big deal, okay? You want to have some adventure, some challenge that was made. He came to this country when he was only 12 years old and he had $5 in his pocket. That's a story that's interesting for, you know, especially you're telling it to a kid, $5 says, what can you do with $5? Okay, nothing. So, how did people in antiquity, before there was a Bible, how did they tell their stories? And even pushing it. When Moses was a little boy, okay, and Moses was growing up in his mother's house, remember, he was found, and he, Pharaoh's daughter finds him, and then Miriam comes out and says, well, I can find an Israelite woman who will feed him and take care of him. So he, he's introduced back into his own home. Later on, years pass, and then suddenly, when no, Moses goes out to see his people, so he goes out to see Israelites who are laboring in Egyptian projects, what made them his people after he'd spent so much time in the, in the Egyptian palace? What, what made them? Only stories. Only the stories. So how had his parents had stories to tell him? And then the stories are... Again, recorded. Who kept track of family lore in ancient Israel? 
I suspect that in some cases it was exactly the same types of people who take care of family lore in our families. It could be this uncle or that uncle or a grandmother or uh, in my wife's family, it was, a, it, was a, it, was a, it was her mother and her four sisters, okay? And these women could get together and they could sit for hours retelling stories and each one correcting the other over the specific detail of what was served at this meal or at this wedding and what color was the dress. I mean, because this was their radio, television, Netflix, everything. That was the whole thing. And then if you were an interested person, you sat down and listened to these stories, you could pass them on. I know more stories about my wife's mother than my wife does. Because I spent time listening to her wife's mother, and uh, to my wife's mother, and for her it was just a mother telling old stories. But I found them interesting and, 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 uh, and fascinating. So now we're going to make a, a quick, now we're doing a little bit of a flip, and I'm asking a serious question about the Bible, which is going to get us into uh, what we're, we're going to be looking at. Where do the stories come from in the Bible? Okay, well, first of all, one could say, a, a simple answer would say, well, if God wrote the Torah, and we're only going to be looking at the Torah except for one story, God wrote the Torah, so God came up with the stories. Okay, so then God should be a reliable record keeper, and the stories should all be true. That's fine. Uh, except for the following. Jewish tradition holds that of the five books in the Torah, two of them have no connection to divine revelation. The book of Deuteronomy, the last of the Chumash, the last book, and the book of Genesis, the first book. The book of Deuteronomy presents itself as the speeches that Moses gave before he died. And the rabbis actually ask the question, well, if it's not divine revelation, what is it doing in the Torah? And the answer is, God allowed it to be in the Torah because he got most of it right. Okay? Why only most of it right? Because sometimes Moses is retelling stories that occur in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And the details are changed. And the details are changed. And usually what happens when the details are changed, Moses comes out looking a little better in, each, in the stories as he's telling them than what the narrative says in the other books. When it comes to the book of Genesis, it's simply sort of ignored. It's simply not discussed. And in fact, the Jewish commentator Rashi asked the question, why does the story begin with the creation of the cosmos? Why doesn't it start in the book of Exodus where you have a mitzvah, okay, as Israelites are commanded to start getting ready for the Exodus? And the answer is so that all of the nations of the world will know about the background of the people. They will know that God created the world he assigned different parts of the world to different people, and the Israelites have been assigned a certain place that they're going to take care of, they're going to take over at a certain time. And therefore, they cannot be accused of being thieves. And that's Rashi's answer, and he's actually building it on earlier statements that were attested in, in, um, in rabbinic literature, in early rabbinical literature. So we're going to be looking at the stories that we have in Genesis. 
which claim no basis uh, in divine revelation. But then again, so where do these stories come from? Well, it seems these stories are folk tales that were handed down over and over through generations. Now, how old are they? Well, it's hard to say how old they are and where they originated from. Those of you who grew up in fairy tales most likely heard one version, those of you with color, whose hair is my color, okay, heard one version of the story, say, of, of the three bears of Little Red Riding Hood when you were kids. And a very different one when you were reading Disney books, Disney versions of the same stories to your own kids. Um, so, for example, if I'm not mistaken, in Little Red Riding Hood in the Disney book, when the hunter comes to rescue Little Red Riding Hood and her grandmother, they're hiding in a closet. But in the original version, they had been swallowed by the wolf, and then the hunter killed the wolf and cut him open and brought out Little Red Riding Hood and her grandmother. Okay. So there were diff the stories undergo different types of cleanup, so to speak, in different generations according to sensibilities. Now what that means is if you told a story or if your grandparents told your parents a story and they told it to you, it was going to be maybe changed a bit. I'll give you one example actually. My father remembered during the Russian Revolution, and the, the, uh, there were different groups that were fighting and one group came to the town where they were living and the Jews there, to avoid being conscripted into any of the armies, had cut off their shooting finger, okay? And what happened is uh, the white Russians came into town, and they, uh, they got all the young men of a certain age, and all of those, there were about four or five men who had cut off their fingers, uh, they were taken out and they were hung publicly, okay? Now, the kids were taken out of school and they were to watch the hanging along with everybody else. So that was a story that he told us. Now, I remember when he was telling us the story, my mother blanching and, and talking to him in Yiddish, which I understood, telling, don't tell that story, it's not for children. He says, but, but I was a child and I saw it, it wasn't, it wasn't a thing. But her sensibilities and his, his idea of what was proper were, were very different. And I tend to his stories and his, his philosophy, and I told those stories to my kids also. Um, but time changes the way the stories are told. And if the stories persist, they usually become efficient and better and better told stories, because people tend to remember them. Now, there's another thing that has happened to our stories that we have in the Bible. The language has changed. Many of us experience those stories in an English translation. Uh, but even when these stories were told in Hebrew, if they were told originally in Hebrew, they were not told in the modern, modern Hebrew, not in the type of Israeli Hebrew that you're going to read in an Israeli newspaper. They weren't told in modern Israeli Hebrew that's been around since about the 1920s. They weren't told in modern Hebrew that began in the late 1800s and people started writing and telling stories and publishing novels and newspapers in Europe. They weren't told in medieval Hebrew from the 5th century that existed from the 15th almost to the 18th century. 
that was used primarily for communication for rabbis. Very few people spoke it. And they weren't, used, weren't told in rabbinic Hebrew, which was used from the end of the Second Temple period until the medieval period, close to 250, 300 years. They were told in biblical Hebrew. And we only know that from the way it's written in the Bible that we have in Hebrew. But wow, now it, Hebrew still has a history before that. So it wasn't told in post-exilic Hebrew, which is the Hebrew that was used by Jews after they returned from the Babylonian exile, where their Hebrew had become uh, very strongly influenced by Aramaic which was a, a very different language, a Semitic language, but a very different language that was used from North India to Egypt, all the way, Syria, Iraq, parts of Turkey, okay, all down the Levant, okay, the whole Levant. Aramaic was the language to know, and then people had their own, sub their own languages that they spoke. So it wasn't in that, that Hebrew. It was most likely originally told in what we call classical biblical Hebrew. That's the Hebrew of most of the Bible from the book of Genesis uh, through Genesis, Exodus, the whole Torah, the prophet sections, and except for a few books at the very end. But that type of Hebrew is only known from the 8th century BCE, maybe the 9th century BCE. If stories were told about Abraham after Abraham died, they were told in a language that didn't exist yet because Hebrew didn't exist. The language Hebrew emerges from other languages around the 10th, 11th centuries before the Common Era. So Abraham's stories must have originated in another language. Okay? Maybe Assyrian, maybe Aramaic, which is older than Hebrew. And then the story was told in different languages. We're not finished. Now take a look at the handout. At some point, these stories come into Hebrew. They come into biblical Hebrew. And what you have over here, first of all, on top, this is what somebody imagined the Ten Commandments might have looked like when they were given at Mount Sinai. Okay? So... And it's actually, it starts the top line on the right, which is sort of faint. Uh, actually, it begins with the beginning of the, uh, at the beginning of the uh, Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you forth. Okay? But what you see over here is the Hebrew, what we call the Hebrew alphabet. You see it running across from Aleph to Taf all the way across the top line. That Hebrew alphabet, that we call the Hebrew alphabet, entered the use of the Jews, we picked it up only during the Babylonian exile. That is an Aramaic alphabet. That is the way people wrote Aramaic from India to Egypt, with a big detour across the Fertile Crescent. Okay. Why did Jews pick it up? Well, because it was a lot nicer than the alphabet, aesthetically it was nicer than the alphabet that they were using. And because they were already speaking Aramaic and reading and writing in Aramaic, and that was the language that you had to do business with the authorities in. So there was no problem with changing the whole Torah 
into Aramaic. And the rabbis make the following statement. Ezra, had God given the Torah in the time of Ezra, who was the leader of the Jews when they came back from the Babylonian exile, had God given the Torah then, then he would have most likely given it in the Hebrew language, but in the Aramaic script. Okay? Uh, I'm sorry, in the Aramaic language, but in the Hebrew script. But, the, but he didn't. It was given earlier. So the Torah was given earlier in the time of Moses. So it's in the time of Moses, it's given in the Hebrew language. And Ezra was allowed to change the alphabet. So the rabbis know that the Torah that they're reading, and when they're writing Hebrew, they're using this alphabet, this Aramaic alphabet, it is a legitimate change that was made. And nobody got excited about it. I was speaking earlier with Ari, and I pointed out that there's a, there were three brothers, but all three were academics in Jerusalem, who for years have been arguing that modern Hebrew should be written using Latin letters because it would be more efficient and everything else. But it never, it never gets, the idea never gets traction, and so it has no great support. But what you see over here then, if you go down, you'll see under the Aleph, you see different forms of the Aleph and all the way down across the alphabet. And you see different, how the letters have changed from the 10th through the 6th century. And uh, when you get to, uh, and then in the 5th century, it was changed. They adopted the Aramaic alphabet. So you see they abandoned what we call the old Hebrew alphabet, which itself is based on a Phoenician alphabet that developed in, on, the, on, the, on the west coast of Lebanon. And they spread this way, and this is what they had. So the stories, that means every generation, every two or three generations, if the stories were written down, they were recopied into a newer alphabet so people could read them. At the same time, Hebrew is changing, okay? And those stories somehow come down to us. But every time a scribe is rewriting the story into its new alphabet, he can introduce changes. He can sharpen it up. He can make it more attractive. If any of your kids came to you and said, you know, I have this composition that I have to add, you know, my seventh grade uh, Christopher Columbus composition, you helped them edit it. You corrected mistakes. You made it sharper. That's part of your job, and that's what editors were doing all the time. Uh, on the next page, you'll see that I have uh, just an example of other documents that were written in these old alphabets. Um, the top of that is a scroll that was found actually, if those of you may have visited the uh, Begin Center in Jerusalem, this was found, and you look, if you look through the right window, you saw where this was, this was found in a grave from the seventh century. And actually you'll recognize, on it you'll recognize the part of the priestly benediction. And the bottom, okay, may the Lord bless you and keep you, etc. Down below, you have a small, it's a, just, it's a picture of an inscription that was found at Ekron, a, phys, a, a Philistine city, written in the Hebrew language, apparently. 
well, except for the name of the king, and um, using a, a Hebrew alphabet, which means that the Philistines, who comes from somewhere in the Aegean, okay, at some point gave up their, their language, they were speaking Hebrew, except, but they kept personal names. They kept uh, Aegean types of names, and, uh, and they picked up alphabet from local parties. So that's how the stories come down to us. Combination of oral tradition, written tradition over a few hundred years, and, um, and in that course of time, we have to understand the stories get sort of finished. They become little gems, polished. It's a, it's, if you want, don't think of it as accidental. It gets better and better and better. Now, I have to talk, before we get to the nitty gritty, I have to talk a little bit about what is a typical story, okay? Now, if I'm going to ask you, how does a fairy tale begin? What is it? And how does it end? Okay, okay, very good. Okay, Adina, last week, okay? All right. Um, does anyone remember how do little moron jokes start? Little moron jokes. You don't know them, okay? And we start, there was a little moron and a big moron. And they were standing on the top of the Empire State Building. Okay? Uh, the big moron fell off. Why didn't the little moron fall off? Because there was a little moron. Okay? They were great in the third and fourth grade. Okay? Um, if I'll ask you, how do the jokes go? How do they begin? So every, we, all know, we, all know, we all know that. And we know exactly what we're supposed to expect when there's, a, uh, when there's that sort of a joke. Okay, now, think back, okay? Uh, cowboy movies, Saturday matinee cowboy movies. How are they supposed to start? Who is it? Who's the character? There's going to be a hero. He's a good guy. How do you know he's a good guy? White hat, okay. And how do you know? Who's the bad guy? Black hat. What else, what else might characterize the black hat guy? What? The mustache, right? The, the facial hair that conceals the lips, okay? So that we're supposed to. So we get that. Um, what are uh, themes, what, what are certain themes that occurred in many cowboy movies? What, where are the sources of conflict in them? Cowboys versus Indians, okay? What else? What? Cow cattle rustlers, okay? So you have the good guys and the bad guys, the innocent cow, okay? So you have the weak farmers and you have the rustler or the herders and the rustlers and then you need the good guy to come in and we know how the story is and we're not bothered by the fact that we know how the story's gonna turn out because for us, the pleasure is how we got from A to B, okay? Um, love stories. What's the, what's the plot? Boy meets girl. Boy loses girl. Boy gets girl. Very nice. So what does Shakespeare do to make Romeo and Juliet a little bit different? What? Forbidden love. Boy gets girl. Okay. 
Okay, girl dies, that's a minor problem, okay? And then there's a tragic resolution. But the whole point of the tragedy, the whole point of tragedy is that things don't work out as we normally would have expected, okay? So we, we, we go to be surprised and to feel emotions that we normally would not necessarily feel. Now, there's another element, and here we're getting a little bit closer to the biblical stories. Uh, How did, how did the Sleeping Beauty get in trouble? Oh, that's not a joke. Okay. How, she, she, ate, she ate the fruit, but what wasn't she supposed to do? What? She wasn't supposed to talk to the stranger. She was supposed to stay in the, she was supposed to stay in the house and not answer the door. And then the old lady comes and sells her the poison apple. Okay, So Sleeping Beauty. Um, Little Red Riding Hood. What? what? She strays from the path. What? How does she stray from the path? She talks to the wolf. It's the same thing. Her her mother packed the bag for her and told her go, but don't talk to strangers. Okay? Don't talk to the wolf. In other words, the stories that we tell children or the stories that adults told to adults. The Grimm brothers did not collect ch children's stories. They were collecting folk tales that adults told to adults. And usually it's the Black Forest and the Dark Forest. And those of you who've been to Europe, if you've been to Vienna, you've walked in old growth forests, and so you understand where these, the descriptions of the dark forest, that light never gets down, all of this co comes from that. All of these stories, though, have a moral lesson that's involved. And basically, it's to listen to people. It's to listen to people who are giving you good advice. Usually, it's your parents uh, or, or the wise person. And it hinges on the lesson to be learned. And that is going to be the same thing in all of the stories that people tell people. You talk about. Uh, uh, a friend of mine is, uh, is an authority on the Bedouin in, in uh, Sinai and in, uh, and in Jordan and in the Negev. And he's published many of their folktales. And on the basis of their folktales, which all have moral lessons, but the moral lessons have to do with tribal solidarity and personal bravery, um, you can actually reconstruct history. Okay? But the stories are told to glorify the tribe, to show the nobility of certain emotions, the ability to challenge and do the unexpected, because that's what they are inculcating in their own people. Okay. Uh, so part of that is what we part of that is what we expect in a um, in a uh, in our stories. Now, <clears throat> this is going to be a little bit. Um, Different. Opening scene of a movie, okay? Soda shop. Everybody know what a soda shop is? A soda shop. Drugstore, you buy sodas, ice cream. That was the day before cannabis was served over the counter, okay? <laughs> so, soda shop. Opens up there. What's going to happen? And? What? Sits down at the counter. And? What? 
buy something and going to be a happy movie. It's always going to be a happy movie because who are the characters that usually fill these scenes? Teenagers, okay? And if you think back far even to another age, it used to be bobby soxers, okay? So it's, there's going to be color and flash and singing and dancing, okay? <coughs> you expect it. You know it's going to happen, and then the art is going to be in how the story tells. And then it's going to follow the normal love story pattern, boy meets girl, da-da-da-da, okay? Um, another type of a scene, uh, uh, another type of a, of a storyline is a bunch of guys during some war end up in flight school. It can be in the United States, it can be in England, it doesn't matter where. Who are the characters that are going to be in flight school? Who? They'll be military. They're all soldiers, okay, and? What? Got it. A hot shot, a goof off. Okay? Another, these are characters you expect there to be. Now, take your hot shot and goof off and put those same types into the, um, in, in, into the soda fountain and you begin to have the makings of a sort of a biblical story. And that's what we're going to turn to <laughs> now. Okay. Take a look, please, at Genesis 24. That's the next page in the handout. Okay, I'm going to give you about two minutes to read through the story very quickly. This story takes place after Abraham went to, was told by God to go up to Mount Moriah to take his son Isaac and to sacrifice him. We all know uh, that that turned out well, otherwise we wouldn't be here today. So, but what's not, people don't pay attention to the fact that at the end of that story, Isaac, uh, Abraham comes down from the mountain and there were two people, two servants there and then Abraham and the two servants go back home and Isaac is left alone on the mountain. And Isaac never speaks to his father again and never sees his father again until he goes to bury his father. Isaac isn't a child. According to inner biblical chronology, he's in his 30s, possibly as old, somewhere between 33 and 37 years old. Okay, so we're not going to ask the question of what 37 year old would allow himself to be tied up on an altar and have his father stand over him with a knife. Okay, okay. maybe not the brightest of the uh, kids. But at any rate, he goes down. Abraham, however, was do Abraham was driven by one set of forces, and he still loves his son, and so he's concerned that his son is not married. Okay, and that's what this the background of this story is. We are going to be looking at stories that are very similar to flight school stories that are very similar to, uh, to cowboy stories. There's a cast of characters that we are familiar, will be, become familiar with in a few moments, but the setting of all these stories is a well, okay? Now, a well is simply a hole dug into the earth until you hit the water table, and then water 
once you've hit the water table, depending on how strong the flow of the water in, in the area is, it fills the bottom of the well, and then you draw water for the well. It's a very important thing. In Israel, wells, all the villages in the mountain areas and in Mesopotamia, almost all depend on wells. And the wells are always located outside of the cities or the villages down below. The cities are usually, or again, villages, etc., are usually built on top of the hill where wind and rain have eroded the soil. In other words, you don't put your house where you can farm. You put your house where the land is no good for anything. So you lived on top, what it meant that the water had to be brought from down below. Okay, that's going to pay, play an important part in each of the stories that we take a look, uh, that we're going to examine. Now, the background to the story, as I said, is Abraham wants to get a, find a, uh, a match for his son. But he wants, you know, but he wants a wife for his son, sort of, I want a girl just like the girl that married dear old dad. So he sends to the home country, the old country, for that. Uh, I actually knew a person who was from Hungary, and uh, he, when he decided he wanted to get married, he actually sent a shatran, someone to find him a wife, in Hungary. And he found a woman, and then, they, a woman, then he went, and it worked out, and they got married. Okay? Um, it was, I think there it had to do with he liked the kitchen, that the kitchen should have a certain flavor to it. Okay, now, Abraham gives instructions as to what he's looking for, and this is the thing that's rather interesting to us. Uh, this, he, gives, he gives the servant instructions, go and take a wife for my son from the daughters of, uh, don't take from the Canaanites, but go to the land of my birth and get a wife for my son Isaac. Okay, that's verse 4. Now the servant says, well, and asks a reasonable question. Well, uh, what if the woman whom I decide on will be appropriate for Isaac decides she doesn't want to come? Okay? Uh, <coughs> so then can I take your son back to there? And he says, no, on no account can you do that because God has promised this to Abraham's progeny, this land to Abraham's progeny. Uh, those are the instructions. Now, pay attention to what Abraham told him. Any girl from there is good enough for my kid. That's the thing. Okay. The servant comes to the homeland, okay, to, and he has with him a load of camels. And we, later on, we learned that he, also, he himself has servants who are managing the camels. And these camels are loaded with whatever camels are loaded with, but also they include the bride price. If you're marrying somebody, it's the, the woman brings a dowry into the family, which can consist, depending on different cultures, of just a few pots to clothing, etc. But the bride price, price has to be paid to the family for having raised such a wonderful young woman as to be the bride. And he comes to the place, uh, and he has no idea of what he is going to do. Now, so take a look, here we are in verse 10. The servant took 10 of his master's camels and set out, and he comes there, and he made his way to Aram Naharaim. He made the camels kneel down by the well outside the city at evening time, 
the time when women come down to draw water. Drawing water is women's work. Okay. And after, after 67, when we could travel freely in the, in, the, in the West Bank, visited many villages, and this scene that's being described here was typical wherever you would go, four or five o'clock in the afternoon, women are coming down to the well. They could spend an hour there, two hours, but that's their social time, and, and, but they have to go back up with jerry cans filled with water. And the servant has no idea what to do, who to choose, okay? And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, grant me good fortune this day and deal graciously with my master Abraham. And now he's going to come up with this absolutely ridiculous test. If you think about how far-fetched it is, okay? Okay, let the maiden to whom I say, please lower your jar that I may drink, and who replies, this whole thing is scripted, drink and I will also water your camels. You have to think, this kid's going to be crazy. Camels drink a lot of water, okay? Let her be the one whom you have decreed for your servant, Isaac. And that's where I'll know that you have dealt graciously with my master. Now, he doesn't care who she is, but she has to follow the script. Okay? And then the narrator tells us something that the servant at this point doesn't know. Somebody whom we are now, we identify as Rebecca, who had been born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother, came out with her jar on her shoulder. He doesn't see Rebecca, the son of blah, 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 blah. He just sees a woman, a young woman, walking down the hill. And the maiden was very beautiful. Okay, that's a bonus. A virgin whom no man had known. How does he know that? I don't know. Okay, okay, he doesn't know that. All he sees is the woman. All he sees is the woman. Incidentally, that she be a virgin, etc., etc., that is not part of the requirement. Okay? A woman was a requirement. But the narrator is telling us this is a real find. This is a real metziah, but let's see how the story works. And that's what makes it interesting. Okay? Because you yourselves, wow, look at this. Okay. Okay. Now, she goes down to the spring. He watches her go down. Fill her jar, one jar, come up, and he, he runs and he says, Please let me sip a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and she quickly lowered her jar on her hand and let him drink. And when she had let him drink his fill, okay, you, you know, talk about someone who comes in for a cup of coffee and says, Then you have pie, okay, okay, okay. Uh, she let him drink. She says, I will also draw for your camels until they finish drinking. And then she goes ahead and she does it. Now, the man has not asked her name. He doesn't know anything about her. And then take a look what he does. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold nose ring weighing a half a shekel, which is supposed to impress us in terms of weight. We don't know exactly how much half a shekel weighed. And two gold bands for her arms, 10 shekels in weight. And then he gives it to and pray, whose daughter are you? And is there room at your father's house for us to spend the night? Because I'm going to have business to talk. She hasn't answered yet. Okay. 
And she went on, oh, there's plenty. And uh, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She gives her genealogy. It doesn't mean, it shouldn't mean anything to the stranger, but it does mean something to him because he knows that his Abraham is related to this family. Wow, who would believe it? Okay, the, the first person I meet is a relative. Okay, and she, and she says, and besides that, she says, come, there's plenty of straw and feed at home and also room to spend the night. Okay, great. And then he bows low and he says, blessed is the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, for I've been guided on my errand by the Lord to the house of my kinsman. Okay, so now there's something, the uncanny has taken place. But we also get some insight into this Rebecca, okay? And her character, she's generous, et cetera. We'll see that that seems to run in the family. And there's one important point that we get in the very last part, in the last uh, paragraph. She runs to her mother's household. Now, Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban, okay? Laban ran out to the man at the spring. He doesn't know the guy's name. She never asked him what his name was. Can I see your social security card, etc.? Something, nothing. Okay, and when he saw the nose ring and hands on his sister's arms, and when he heard his sister Rebecca say, thus the man spoke to me, he went up to the man who was still standing beside the camel. And he says, come in, O blessed of the Lord. What did it take Laban to go and suddenly be generous and welcome him? Gold. He saw his sister is walking in with bracelets filled with gold. There's this guy who's a stranger standing by the well, left because she's coming in. And he runs out and he greets him. Uh, and that's the beginning of the story. The character, the, our author, our story, okay, is telling us something about these characters through their behavior. And if we read it slowly and not just, oh God, it's the Parashat Shavuot, I'll just eyeball it, and you begin to read the, our story closely, it is absolutely fascinating what is going down. For us, this is a well story, okay? It happened at this really neat place. Turn to the next page. Okay. Uh, We'll, we'll, we'll go down to 29, to the, the bottom story, then we'll take the short one up on top in a moment. Okay? Um, Jacob, Rebecca's son, has just finished stealing Esau's birthright. Now, Esau doesn't come across as the shiniest coin, okay? Uh, selfish, hungry, etc. I says, I'm about to die. I'll take, you can have my birthright. So Jacob made a good deal, except for the fact that Esau says, I'm going to kill him. So Rebecca tells her son, uh, uh, tells her son, her favorite son, who she helped deceive his own father to get the, okay, to get the blessing. She says, get out of here while the getting's good. And Jacob comes to the land of the Easterners, he's basically, he's going back to Rebecca's family. He has to be rescued. And there before his eyes was a well in the open. Okay, where did the servant go looking for a woman? She went to the well. Jacob comes to the well. Okay, okay. 
And there were flocks of sheep lying there beside it, for the flocks were watered from that well. The stone on the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the stone would be rolled from the mouth of the well and the sheep watered. And then the stone would be put back in its place on the mouth of the well. You didn't want dirt or dust or sand falling into the well. You didn't want animals falling into the well, rotting and polluting the water. So this was a way of keeping control. And that gives us background as to what is going to happen. It's, now, that what's fascinating about the story is that whoever is telling the story is telling it to people that don't know this information. He's most likely talking to people who live in the cities. They don't know. This is what goes on over there. They're no long, this is no longer a people who are wandering. This is no longer B'nai Israel, children of Israel living in the land of Israel in a semi-nomadic state. These are people who live at home. It's, you know, like, um, remember my, I, my cousin's kids came and stayed with us once in Jerusalem, and they, we sent them down to the store. Uh, to get some uh, ice cream, and then uh, they come running back to the apartment. They say, the man wants money. What's money? Okay, they were, they'd grown up on a kibbutz. They didn't know what money was. So, so they, they got money, and then they, that's how they learned uh, about money. Okay, so um, Jacob, uh, Jacob, he starts, he sees people there, and Jacob says to them, my friends, where are you from? Uh, and they say, we're from Haran. Not quite, there, okay. Uh, then do you happen to know Laban, the son of Nahor, <clears throat> who's apparently a big shot. This is his uncle Laban. And he, yes, here he is. And there's his daughter, and here's his daughter Rachel coming with the flock. He said, it's still too early to be, it's still too early, it's broad day, I'm sorry, it is still broad daylight, too early to round the animals, water the flocks and take them to pasture. Now, understand that what Jacob is doing. He just walked up into the scene. These guys are lounging around. Here's suddenly Mr. Bigshot. He's telling them what to do as if he's a landowner and a boss. What are you doing? You're wasting your time over here. Okay, get rid of the stuff. Get back to work. It's too early. But they said, we can't do what you're saying. Okay, we can't do that until all the flocks are rounded up, and then the stone is rolled off the mouth of the well, and we water the sheep. Now, while he, so he understands her problem. While he was still speaking, Rachel came with her father's flock, because she was a shepherdess. And when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of his uncle Laban, and the flock of his uncle Laban, Jacob went up and rolled the stone off the mouth of the well. And he watered the flock of his uncle Laban. You shepherds, you wait. I'm the guy who pushed the stone off. Okay? Okay? Um, then, then, after he does all this, then Jacob kissed Rachel and broke into tears. And then he told Rachel after he kissed her, got it? Okay, Joe Baden. And uh, Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. On hearing the news of his sister's son Jacob, Laban ran to greet him. He embraced him, okay, and kissed him, and took him into his house. 
And he told Laban all that had happened, and Laban said, you are truly my bone and flesh. My flesh and blood would be the equivalent in English. Now, what does this mean? Let's work backwards. Laban says, you're truly my bone and flesh. In what way are you truly my bone and flesh? They're kinsmen, but... What did he hear? What was the news? What are you doing here? Why are you here? He had just heard that Jacob tells the story of how he had tricked his brother out of the birthright. You're my bone and flesh. You're a, you're a guy, you're a man of my heart, like my heart. We're not finished with that, okay? Um, when, did Jacob, when did Laban run out on hearing news of his sister's son, Jacob? He runs out. There's somebody who's coming in from the family. What made Rachel so attractive to Jacob? Where do you see that? He saw the flocks of his uncle Laban. Like meets like. Okay? These are small, little, extraneous details, but they're not so extraneous because the moment you open your mind and you ask yourself, why is this detail being presented to us in this story? Well, then you suddenly, it begins to pull together. And what this is telling us something, it's really telling us something very important about the storytellers and our ancestors. They like the humor, the humor of the story, the cleverness of the story was in the details. They weren't into American Western shoot 'em up, big moral struggles like this. They were into the interesting little details. And it's that same sort of a mindset that will be interested in the fine lettering and how to interpret a law. Their pleasure is in language and in the use of language. Here we see how language works in description of a character. Now Jacob suddenly, when he wants to, is able to pick up the stone that all the shepherds have to get together to, to, to roll off the well, and he pushes it off, and boy, he can flex his muscles. This is the same Jacob later on who is going to wrestle with an angel. Okay, with a divine figure and will be able not to vanquish the figure, but, not, but he'll be able to stop that figure from vanquishing him. So there's something about this character that for all his misguided behavior, okay, there's something interesting, very interesting about him. Incidentally, he never is presented as a, as a model figure and he talks to Pharaoh at the end of his life when he's in Egypt and he tells him, I'm an old man, but my life has been miserable. Okay? So he can be a hero for us, he's sort of an anti-hero, not an admirable person, but an interesting person. But again, beautiful Rachel, or he sees Rachel, lot of sheep, shepherdess, and he does the manly thing, and boom, now. One more well story. Let's take a look at the top of the page. Moses just killed an Egyptian. And he runs away. Okay. 
and he, uh, he comes to the land of Midian. Where's the land of Midian? If you imagine Moses crossing the Sinai Peninsula and heading down towards Eilat, and then from Eilat making a right turn into Saudi Arabia, that's the land of Midian. Okay, so it's a place where there's silver, there's, excuse me, there's, not, there's copper there, there's gold there. Okay, anyways, he comes there. And he sat down beside a well. Okay. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. Okay, so we already know what's going to happen. Okay. And they came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flocks, flock. But the shepherds came and drove them off, which makes sense. Okay, we're all here at the same time. We're tougher than you are, so you're going to wait till after. We'll draw the water when the water level is high. And then afterwards, you can, there's seven of you, you can drag out this. It'll take you as longer, but who cares? Okay? And drove them off. Moses rose to their defense. He watered their flock. Okay? It's almost the reverse of what we saw in the... In the, in the uh, a servant story with uh, Rebecca. When they returned to their father, Reuel, he said, how is it that you've come back so soon today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from, from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flocks. Okay. He said to his daughters, parenthesis, are you crazy? Where is he then? Okay, where is he then? Why did you leave the man? Ask him in to break bread. Now he married seven daughters running back to the well. Okay? Moses consented. Now something must have happened between verse 20, between verse 20 and 21. What happened? They encounter, they had a conversation, because the first thing we hear in 21, Moses consented to stay with a man. He had to have been invited. There had to have been a meal. There had to be some conversation. Storytellers may have elaborated on this. The rabbis in the Midrash clearly jump into the space between the two verses and tell stories about the conversation. Okay? Moses consented to stay with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Tzipporah as wife. She bore a son whom he called Gershom, and he said, I've been a stranger in a foreign land. It's another well story. It's another hero story. This Egyptian who's just running away from doing the right thing in Egypt comes here and he sees people whom he doesn't know being, pers being uh, per persecuted or being at least pushed around. And he acts heroically. And again, he's a, he does a lot of physical work. And then they sort of say thank you and walk off. But Uel has a real problem on his hands. He's got seven daughters. Okay. <laughs> That's clearly understood. That's why Laban is interested in getting in marrying off his daughters. That's why Abraham, all of these stories you see have to do with men and women and getting married. And suddenly Moses comes up and it's a story about a, a minor hero. But it's a matter of showing his character. Okay? The previous story about the murder, he sees an Egyptian beating an Israelite man. Someone is attacking somebody who is part of mine. So me rising up and defending him makes sense. Okay? 
Um, and then he runs away, okay? Over here, he's in a foreign land, and these are foreign people, but he is doing the right thing. There's something in his character that comes through the story. Now, take a look about, there's something else, though, about the well and the story and this. That is, Moses was rescued earlier by Miriam, his sister, his mother, but initially by the daughter of Pharaoh, who saves him from the Nile, and she raises him. So there's a certain affinity. If you be asked the question, women, what is the role of women in his life? There are women that are important. Water, the Nile, okay? The story of the well, of women at the well, and then later on, the crossing of the Red Sea. Ultimately, and, and, and watering the flock. Moses is gonna water more, the, is gonna water a different flock later on. The children of Israel, B'nai Israel in the wilderness. Okay, and ultimately he is going to be punished and not allowed to go into the land because at one point when he should have spoken to the rock, he hit the rock. The story plays out again, but here the thing that sets the, 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 that gets the adrenaline flowing is the presence of women by water. And that's without even talking about the symbolism of water in terms of wisdom and sexuality. So what do we have over here? What have we looked at uh, over here? Um, I'm gonna skip 1 Samuel 9. Uh, but if you look at it, you'll see how a gaggle of gals get infatuated with the young Saul before he becomes king because he's so tall, dark, and handsome. Okay. Also by the well. Our stories, our ancestors are telling stories. We are able to read these stories. We're able to decode these stories. Now, what I'm sharing with you today is a system of reading the stories that was developed by one of my teachers at the Hebrew University, a man named Shmuel Yahu Talmon, who died about a decade ago, and then was subsequently picked up by uh, a number of American and Israeli scholars. The, the, the best known person is a guy who's been written up already twice in the journal in the last few weeks, and that's Robert Alter. So Robert Alter, who's just provided a new translation of the Bible, has studied these stories also, well, he, and, and, he's done so, and he's written them up also in, in a nice, you know, a few of the stories, in a nice way. But for us, what is important is the discovery of number one, the fact that these stories merit our attention. They're not stories like Little Red Riding Hood. They're much more sophisticated. These are stories that were told by adults for adults. And these people could pick up the clues because they were sort of clever. They're simply clever stories. Each of the stories comes to illustrate something <laughs> heroic about, or something special about the characters who are involved. Incidentally, if you'll notice carefully, the women come out as good women, uh, not except in the one Samuel line, they come out as a little bit silly, but in the one, but elsewhere they come out as, as good characters, but they're not the focus of anybody's attention because the Bible ultimately is a very male-oriented, uh, uh, dominating uh, book. 
But there is a moral lesson that runs, or something, there's a moral thread that runs through all of these, and that is as we go through life, as these went, people went through life, they don't understand a divine thread that's running through their story. They don't understand what they're learning from something that happens to them until long afterwards in reflection. So that reading the stories of our ancestors, the ones whom in our memories we know about them and then we jump some backwards to our great grandparents, at least we can learn something about them, this inquisitiveness, this joy of language that characterizes almost all of the, every biblical book. Okay? This joy of playing, which Robert Alter tries to bring to us in his English translations of the whole Bible now, uh, that is something that is a characteristic in an odd way of the Jewish people. It's reflected in the Midrash. It is reflected, whether you like it or not, in all of the legal arguing that goes on back and forth in halachic texts as they, as they fillet every word looking for meaning to develop the system of halacha, which governs in one way or another most of Jewish, uh, much, many aspects of Jewish life and Jewish thinking. And so the stories that they told and the stories that we hear are stories worth retelling. Thank you. Any questions? Early in your talk, you suggested that the book of Genesis and the book of Deuteronomy were not divine revelation, is that correct? correct. Uh, that's not the party line that I've heard. Uh, can you uh, talk more about that, and uh, how do you come to that conclusion? Oh, I don't have to come to the conclusion. The rabbis did it for me, um, so I'm just citing. The rabbi, there's a, whole, there's a whole discussion. It doesn't take place in the early, in the Middle Ages. It takes place around the 14th and 15th centuries. And the question is, what is the book of Deuteronomy doing in the, it starts off with Deuteronomy. What's it doing in the Bible? Because nowhere does it say God revealed something new to Moses. So why have it there? Why have a book that, in which Moses is just rehashing what happened in the past for people, most of whom, or many of whom were there, or their parents were there? And the explanation is, as I, I, as I gave here, that God heard the speeches and he said, it's okay, it can be counted. In other words, the rabbis are stuck. It's there. They're asking, why is it there if it doesn't contain revelation? The book of Genesis, there are stories about God revealing himself to characters, but there is no revelation for Israel. So why, who needs it? Okay? So for that, Rosh, I just gave you Rashi's explanation, and that it needs it so that you have the backstory for what happens, begins to happen to the Jewish people as the Jews become a nation in the book of Exodus. Those are, those are the two reasons. I don't believe you used the word patriarch to describe uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, you may have missed it. No. And ordinarily, or a, uh, um, how could I say it, a, a, uh, a Hebrew school child's uh, interpretation of a patriarch is a, uh, an heroic, super individual, greatly revered. As I hear your stories, and what I surmise is your attitude 
toward what we had called the patriarchs, is that they're really ordinary people presented with extraordinary opportunities. Would you comment on that? I think that you did. No, no, I think that you did. And this is, it's really, it's worth, they are, the whole point, I think, it, to the extent that the patriarchs are, can be used as models of behavior, they can be used positively and negatively. Okay? Um, and those lessons are of people just like us who sometimes face similar situations. So you become a hero not by being born, born a hero, but you become a hero by doing heroic things. And even heroes have faults and flaws. The rabbis are aware of faults and flaws in, 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 in the Jewish tradition. They prefer to um, de-emphasize and skip over the flaws and, and emphasize the more heroic. So Abraham becomes the hero of faith. Isaac, who never does much of anything other than almost having been sacrificed by his father, is considered a person who spent all his time studying Torah. Before He was so pious he, did, he was studying Torah before the Torah was given. So, uh, you have, so you have this tendency. Now, the rabbis who, even if they're telling a story like this, uh, th these are people who lived in real time. These are people who were engaged in politics interfaith dialogue and interfaith debate. So they were aware of what was going on. And um, my attitude towards them is, I think that I prefer to treat these things when I'm talking to an adult audience as an adult topic. So you were right. When we learned in Hebrew school, that was fine. But I'm going to quote another Jew who from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, Paul. Uh, Paul said, okay, when I was a child, I did childish things, and when I, became, when I grew up, I put away childish things. And, uh, and, then, and then he, and to think seriously about these things. I think we as a people are capable of doing that, and we lose nothing in celebrating our patriarchs and matriarchs. Thank you for the question. I have, uh, I have some younger children now who apparently live in my home, now related to me. And uh, so I was decided I would get a book of uh, Bible stories from the Chumash to read to my two-and-a-half-year-old. And I bought one, and I opened it up, and I said, there's no way I'm reading these stories to him. This is not a kid's story. So how are you supposed to read these stories to little kids and even teach them to kids before they become adults when they are really not the greatest stories, particularly the ones from Genesis? Um, and uh, it seems like we do read them, and then as adults, we never read them. So we seem to have a... Uh, okay. One book and one website, okay? One book. Uh, my Little Midrash Reader, which is a book that's geared for elementary school kids, which is actually very nice. It's selections from the Midrash, but are controlled. Uh, a website, for a, a really good website, and those of you who teach, is Chabad's Parashat HaShavua. Okay? They have material there for kids. You can download and print out things for your kids to color. They have cartoons on themes from the parasha that are a given to different ages. 
Um, so there's really a lot of, they have stories that are geared for, that are geared for kids. They have questions that you can ask kids. So it, it's a very useful thing. Very little is done, has been done, other than by them for, uh, for Jewish children. So when I was looking for stuff for my kids at some point, I would go to a large Christian bookstore where they are very much concerned about this because they understand very well that if you don't get them when they're kids, it's going to be a lot harder to get. If you don't get the emotional connection when you're a kid, it's going to be a lot harder when you're, when you're an adult. There is a lot of stuff there that's actually very useful, and I've seen a lot of the material in Orthodox day schools, and all they do is there are certain pages that, that I, you'll sometimes see cut out. Um, it, there could be a home scene with a crucifix on the wall or something like that. But, but all they do to, to, to make these, these books kosher for children is they put the yarmulkes on the kids, <laughs> on the boys, and then, the home, and, then everything, and then everything works out. But even some Christian bookstores now are uh, actually, well, you'll find in the describing Jewish homes, you'll actually see a Hanukkiah, Shabbos candles in the background. It's a very, it's a very interesting phenomenon. So Chabad, Christian bookstores, and my little Midrash reader, illustrated. Okay. So many of it and many of the stories, number two always comes out on top over number one. Um, fast forward, um, Solomon becomes king after David dies. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Um, is there any relationship between these biblical stories um, and what actually happened and what was recorded and pretty well documented um, uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in the lives of the kings. So your question is about the, this theme of the younger son taking, taking over. Okay. Um, it is a theme that runs all the way through from the very, from, from, from the very beginning of, uh, of story, starting with uh, Cain, and, Cain and Abel. So it is a theme. The son, and, and what's happened is there's a tension between a tradition, a, pa a, a patriarchal tradition where the older son inherits. The older son is supposed to become the next king, okay? And that's most likely the way property passed, and this was most likely normal all the time in the biblical period. But what's unique is that the stories that we have here, where, where there's a focus on this, it's always the unexpected one that comes through. So that David is the youngest of seven. And it's the younger son who's taking over, and it just means you never know how God is going to work stuff out. But sometimes the oldest son inherits in the, in, in the genealogies of the kings that it sometimes happens, but it's not an interesting story. The story is when the unexpected happen, and as God's very often says, salvation will come from another place. You don't know, so you have to live your lives and you do the best you can. But it's, it's, that's a very good observation. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for coming out. Wish you a wonderful Pesach. Reread your stories. 
And don't forget the program here May 1st. Uh, have a good rest of your Sunday.